Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Our return guest this week, one of my favorite humans, Spring Washam, who I make fun of in my first book, 10% Happier, relentlessly, but she then turns out to be uh, the hero of the key chapter in that book. And she's back because you, if, you, if you've if you heard her first visit, great. You don't need to go back and listen if you haven't heard it. It's, it's, uh, it's all good. But even if you did hear and remember her first tour of duty on this podcast, there is a whole side to her story that is really incredible and and uh, disturbing and inspiring. Uh, it's all in a new book that she's written, and I was unaware of a lot of this biographical information until until this interview. So you'll hear it all come pouring out from spring. It, you know, it involves incarceration, it involves race, it involves lots of really thorny subjects and at the heart of it all is somebody who has made it out and has really used this practice of meditation to uh, train her own mind in some very difficult circumstances and is now this really impactful teacher as i know firsthand from having uh, learned from her okay so that's uh, that's coming up first though let's do your calls and as always the caveat i'm not a mental health professional not a meditation teacher i'm just a reporter and i'm also a meditator, and I do my best to answer these questions, which I have not heard in advance, to the best of my ability. Here's call number one. Hi, my name is Teresa. I'm from Bear, Delaware. I've been listening to your all your podcasts, and to um, and I read 10% Happier. It was life-altering, and I've been meditating for about two years now. Here's the question I have. When people talk about meditation and um, there's been some negative press lately about it, whether, you know, it's all it's cracked up to be and, you know, the research is, is flawed and all this, I, I think about the fact that on many occasions you've said there's no harm. And I was wondering if you know of any studies that say that meditation can be harmful. Because the way I look at it is that if it's not hurting me, um, and it is helping me personally, why shouldn't I try it to have a better life? So I was just wondering, is there any research or do you know of any research that states that uh, meditation can be harmful in any way? Thanks so much, and thank you for all you do. Thank you. Two years meditating, that's really good. So kudos to you for that. And a great question, and and I <laughs> I notice in my own mind when, when there are these kind of anti-meditation or meditation hit pieces that run, I can see my own kind of defensiveness come up or doubt and all this stuff. And that's an interesting process to watch. The most recent one was a few weeks ago, there was a piece in the New York Times about the fact that meditation may make employees less motivated. And there was a great response to that piece written by Richie Davidson, previous guest on this podcast, and Ariana Huffington, also a previous guest on this podcast, talking about uh, putting it in a much greater perspective. And actually, there are a lot of studies that show that meditation makes you much more effective uh, in the workplace. Uh, And so they cast a lot of doubt about it. But it's an interesting thing to watch that there is – the people are ready – for we're, we're at this stage in the hype cycle 
where people are, you know, meditation has received a lot of hype. Um, I've been part of the problem, probably, even even though I tried not to feed it by calling my whole thing 10% happier. In other words, not overpromising, but still, um, I'm sure I'm part of the problem. But but we're in this stage where meditation has gotten so much hype that when there are data points that suggest it may not all be all it's cracked up to be, people love jumping on it. Um, and, you know, oh, that's cool. I, I get it, too. I mean, I'm, I'm a snarky media type, so I understand how that goes. Um, plenty of snark and everything I do. So, fair, you know, turnabout is fair play. Uh, nonetheless, I, I think, you know, you've heard me say this before about the science, but I, I think it bears repeating. There is quite a large body of science, which is still in its early stages. Um, but I think it, it, what we can safely say is it strongly suggests that meditation confers a long list of health benefits, like lowering your blood pressure, boosting your immune system, and, and, and the neuroscience that shows that it rewires key parts of your brain. That, that is out there. Um, and um, yes, some of the science out there is not very good. We have to just say that. Um, and the scientific process, once you take a look at it, and I'm married to a scientist and a child of scientists, I mean, it's, an, it's a messy process. And it's basically an argument had in public in these journals and it can be it has ups and downs and back and forth but i think that the arc of history to get a little grandiose is is you know leading us toward the conclusion that meditation is good for you um there are all sorts of different kinds uh, it may not be good for everything uh, there were there were, just as an example i was listening back i don't usually go back and listen to my own podcast but i was as part of some research that i'm doing for an upcoming book i was listening back to a recent podcast we did with uh, Thubten Jinpa, who's uh, the primary English translator for the Dalai Lama and also a um, academic and former monk and really smart guy and has written a book about compassion. And we did a live event together. He's, he, like Spring Washam, has been on the podcast twice. And then I was listening to the second podcast with him, uh, which we did live together at the Asia Society here in New York. And I asked him at, at one point about another another there had at this point recently uh, when we recorded that podcast been Another rash of articles, meditation kind of hit pieces because there had been a study that showed that people or seemed to show that people, when they learned how to meditate, it didn't actually make them nicer. I might not be saying that accurately, but it was something that's, I think, the general gist of it. And his his response was great. He was he was so not defensive. His response was, um, well, uh, that may they may be right. I don't know. But. What we can say for sure is, and this is him talking, is that meditate. You know, when it comes to being a better person, meditation isn't enough. It's really helpful, but you actually have to, you know, do nice things in the world. I mean, that is actually part of the training. You you have to be kind actually in your life. So it's not enough to just sit and practice kindness as a meditation technique. You actually have to do it. The point of meditation isn't to become, as Sharon Salzberg always says a better meditator the point is to become a better human and i thought that was a really wise point to make and and something to to bear in mind when you when these uh these spates of negative news coverage happen vis-a-vis meditation that seem to occur occasionally like the weather but to answer the question you actually asked me oh and i want to say one thing before that i've said this a million times but it's just worth saying again, because there are some people, myself included, who get sucked into these media spasms that happen once in a while. It's the, the science. I'm glad the science is happening as a meditation evangelist. I it's a it's an incredible tool. 
But you have you said it uh, in your voicemail that that you you've been doing this for two years. It's showing benefits in your own mind. That's the thing that matters. It doesn't you know at the end of the day for people who are already meditating, who cares what the science says? Who who cares? It's it's really is it working for you? And so it, you, who who knows whether your prefrontal cortex looks different right now? That's not the measure. The measure is are you less of a jerk to yourself and others? But to answer your question, I do know of one at least one study that shows detrimental effects of meditation, and the authors of that study were on this podcast. Um, go back and search for the episode with Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl, who are now married. They wrote a study, they're Brown University professors, about something called the Dark Knight. Um, well, actually, that's not in the title of their study, but essentially they were looking at something called the Dark Knight, which is a, an, a phrase used for a phase in meditation, which is a difficult phase that happens to meditators. And, and they, they speak with some real authority about this phase in meditation that some people hit where they, they really have psychological difficulties, um, perhaps as a consequence of their meditation. It's, it's, it's not fully known, but it, it would be wrong to say that there are no adverse effects possible of meditation. We have in the scientific literature documented cases of people who've run into problems while meditating. From what I can tell, it's pretty rare, like pretty rare, but it's not that it never happens. And it also seems to happen, again, this is not always the case, but it seems to happen to people who are doing intensive retreats. But again, it has happened to people on much lower doses. I don't think people are dropping like flies with meditation-related ailments, but it's, you know, I mean, maybe a rough comp would be getting hurt at the gym. You know, I think that's probably more common. I hear about that more often than I do of, than uh, hear about people having problems while meditating. But, you know, every doctor is going to tell you you should be getting physical exercise of some sort. And we all know it's possible to get injured. Uh, and I think the same thing may be true, although in my, my feeling, and I don't have any data to back this up, but that is that injuries, quote unquote, happen at a much lower level with meditation. Long answer. You got me fired up. Uh, here's call number two. Hi, this is Melissa from West Virginia, and I have a question about whether meditation uh, could help improve my focus day to day. My job is dead boring, but it requires concentration and reasoning skills. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm reading through medical records, analyzing them, writing about them, but some days it's a struggle most days. It's a struggle to focus. Um, but the job provides good benefits and health insurance, and I want to keep it for my family. So uh, can meditation help? Thank you. Bye-bye. That's a great question. I got so worked up in the last answer that I, I started my body temperature rose. I had to take my sweatshirt off. Okay, but but um, we're talking about you now. Um, can it help with focus? So I have a bunch of things to say about this. There is a significant amount of evidence that suggests that meditation can uh, rewire the part of the brain that uh, has to do with attention regulation. So, yes, the short answer is yes, it seems to help with focus. About a big part of focus, in, well, and I, let me just say in my own personal experience, um, I do believe that it has helped my focus. But it, it's not miraculous. 
I still get distracted by Twitter or email or my son or whatever. And I think there are meditation. I think there are a bunch of other ancillary systems I could put into place, um, habits I could form that would really help with my focus and productivity. And I, sh- I at some point, I'm going to go research those. So I think meditation is one thing that can help with focus, but I, would, I wouldn't look at it as some miracle cure, and I would look at it as part of a suite of things that you could do to stay locked in on whatever you're trying to do. But a big part, in my experience, of focus is interest. You know, like in w- one of the pieces of advice you'll often hear from meditation teachers is to Bring interest and curiosity and investigation to whatever it is that's coming up in your mind. And this is just an an incredible factor, uh, a mental factor that can be harnessed to your benefit. And I hear a problem for you in that you called your work dead boring. I get it that you may have no other option, and I completely respect that, and so I'm not trying to make trouble here, but... I wish for you, uh, if I could give you any advice, I would investigate, if I were you, the possibility of safely switching careers without jeopardizing the benefits and the salary that you need to take care of your family. Obviously, that has to be um, job number one. But it's hard to be, you know, I'm speaking from experience here, that it's hard to be the best you can be with your family if you're, you know, spending a significant percentage of your waking hours unhappy. I, again, I'm not trying to make trouble. I don't know all the particulars of your situation, and I am uh, very sensitive to the economic imperatives here. So um, I, you got to do what you got to do, and good on you for doing it. it you're, you're doing the right thing. But if you could, if there was a possibility of finding ways to – to engage your mind uh, in ways that will be more fulfilling. I would love to see that happen for you. But anyway, the short answer to your question is meditation has been shown to help with focus. So I would look at that and also look at some other things from people who have broader uh, set of uh, knowledge than I do. There's a good book called Focus by uh, Danny Goldman, Daniel Goldman, who's been on this podcast a couple times. Uh, So you might take a look at that. It's not really a how-to book, but it talks. uh, You can glean some pretty actionable advice from that. Okay, thank you. Let's get to Spring. Spring is a meditation teacher based in the Bay Area, although I hear she's moving to another part of California. I don't know if she wants me to say where that is. Um, And she wrote a book called A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. She knows that I'm the kind of person who's going to make fun of her for using the word heart in her book title. Um, And she has a long history of me making fun of her because I did it with a lot of relish in 10% Happier in the chapter about where I went off on a silent meditation retreat. And she – I found her really, really annoying. But then uh, I realized that I was the one who was a jerk and she swooped in and saved me when I was having a lot of trouble in meditation on – and was thinking about quitting. And it really – uh, occasioned uh, uh, something of a breakthrough in my own meditation practice. And subsequently, we've become friends. And she's just a phenomenal person. She was on, as I mentioned, the podcast um, about a year ago or maybe even more. And she has this incredible story of her own personal biography. And we, as I learned when I started to look at her new book, her first book, we barely scratched the surface of what this person has lived through and that she has not only survived, but thrived and turned around her life and used her experiences to help 
so many people in so many different situations is a real achievement. So welcome back to Spring Washroom. Here she is. Now we're going to talk about parts of your background that actually weren't covered in that first podcast. And in particular, I will say that at reading the first parts of this book, I actually didn't know how difficult your childhood was. I mean, mm. you, you mentioned it a little bit, but I really didn't know in quite as much detail as you share in this book. So can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between your parents? Yeah, that one's a little interesting. I mean, I'm in contact with them. I, I am in contact with them, but they, you know, I, as Are I they wrote, in contact with one another. No, right. no, no. They, my mother is remarried and my father lives in Delaware now, actually. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's like they just didn't have any capacity to be parents like many parents. <laughs> How did they meet? Um, I, I tell that story on there. They met on their friend's couch. Yeah, the friend they met on it. They both were homeless. He had just got out of prison and she had just left another relationship. Your dad had just gotten out of prison. Yeah, but it was a one year prison charge for check forgery. It was like really, uh, you know, he's not a violent person. He's just really delusional, but not violent. Delusional in what way? <sighs> Thinks the rules don't apply to him? Yeah, just thoughts of grandiosity that could never be. Like, you know, just like, I'm going to make a million dollars, but he has no education, no capacity, no, no, you know what I mean? Just like dreamer that, and, you know, but has all these kids. I'm one of 10 children he has. Whoa. I know. He's been married a bunch. Do you have relationships with the other 10 kids? Or the yeah, well, my kids? sister is one of my best friends. It's from my mother. And then my three, I'm very close to three of my brothers who were all, there's three that are very, they're, they're all the same age and they're very close and we've all had a close bond. Um, my other brothers, one's in prison, one's like was an addict for, yeah. Wow. I know. That's why I call the first chapter "Blooming in the Mud," Dan. It's like the <laughs> explain that, explain "Blooming in the Mud" because that's really, a specific reference. Yeah, the lotus. Yeah, and then how it archetypally, you know, the lotus flower. The lotus flower literally can bloom for a thousand years in the muddiest of waters. One flower. I've been studying in the lotus and national flower of India. Yeah. And so you you've had there's been plenty of mud. Yeah, no mud, no lotus, though, <laughs> you know, Dan, I mean, some people and I use the analogy a lot of, you know, some people swoop in from the top of their spiritual life. They kind of come in with Lululemon and they, they work it out. But it's all kind of like it's not muddy. It's painful, but not muddy. Muddy is just like muck. And then there's a lot of people who come from the bottom. And I like to explain that. And they have to fight their way through the, shit, you know, in a different way. It's muddy. It's not that the top, the ones that fly from the top is not hard. It is pain there. But it's not nearly as dirty as, you know, <laughs> you know they don't need it, it's, obviously. It's so funny because I haven't seen you in a minute. And, and I forgot how you can talk about the heaviest of stuff in such a light way. How do you... I don't know. How do you People pull that up all the time? I don't know because it's both in me. It's both that like, it's both that like I I could cry in a second hearing these stories or thinking about something that happened to me or my one of my you know brothers or life, and then there's a part of me that does see it as like part of the journey. It's like it's some kind. It is empty on some level. Like I'm more than that. We all are. It is empty. A lot. Some people might not understand what you mean by that right. specifically. It's 
it's still all a story at this stage. You know, it's like it, it it's like who I am. Like I'm more than the trauma. And I teach us a lot in Oakland because people I have huge classes there and people come and there's all this trauma and suffering. And I always just look at people and say, yes, all this is one level of reality. Yes. Abuse, the abandonment, betrayals of the worst kind, you know, and we are more than that. You know, we are more than this is just one chapter. And that's really what the message of that book is about, is trying to get people to see it's just like one moment in time. This isn't the whole of it. You know, we're so much more than that. And that's where I talk about like the absolute. And, you know, this is this is like a star, you know, we're like one glimmer, one one moment. And so um, so I don't know. There is a lightness. People tell me that all the time, like, oh, my God, one minute I'm crying, one minute I'm laughing with you on retreats or whatever. And you can go to these places because I've been there. And so those places are important to go, but not essential to stay. Like we learn and then um, we use the mud. When you say the absolute, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, that's maybe that's not the right word, the absolute. I guess I would mean ultimate reality or like, you know. The that's rea- a Buddhist term. That of is a Buddhist term. So as a Which is fine to jargon. use. No, yeah. no, 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 no. We're okay with jargon here. We yeah. should just explain just what explain it means. What it yeah. is. I guess it's like the level of quantum physics. Like, you know, if I was to look at this. You know, I would just whatever you're looking at a bottle of water now or headphones. Yes. Right. I would if I look on the quantum level, there's nothing here but moving particles. Right. It seems solid. It seems very solid, just like our stories, the pain, all of it seems like, oh, my God. But if I look very closely at it, it's like, oh, right. It's just a constellation of memory and emotion. So to see the quantum level of uh, the headphones that are in your hands, uh, you need a microscope. To see it with your stories, you need meditation, which is a right. microscope. You need, exactly. Internally. You need to be able to hone that part of the mind that can look deeper than just the, the surface level, can sort of penetrate into what it is. Yeah. Do people underestimate you because you come off as kind of like I did, right? The first time I, I wrote about it in my book, that I, the first time you got up there and were teaching love and kindness, I was like, who is this? <laughs> and <laughs> and so, do you find that people, because you have a light and breezy sort of way, do you think that, do you think people underestimate you? Yeah, I think they do, totally. Because, you know, Jack... Cornfield, he used to drag me around a lot with him when I was very young. And so people would be like... Jack Cornfield, the yeah, eminent but, Buddhist yeah, meditation and he teacher. Had all, and he would be like, you're teaching next to it. And I'd be like, what? Where are these people? I'm so young. They don't, they're not going to... And he's like, no, no, come on, come on. Bring that... Speak from your heart, he would just tell me. And so I did get a lot of people underestimating me. And I think that book clarifies my views a lot in some way a fierce heart is about showing that fierceness and i think my second book will do that too this is like oh my god like a 10-year warrior journey it is like superwoman stories i didn't it's hard when i when i start writing it it's like wow this the, all se- the second book's going to be about something you discussed in in our first podcast which is yeah your the shamanic world yeah the, the, your and Buddhism experience with... and blending them damn it's right. not the, the shamanic world my my path is blending them it's like, how does this actually help this? So they're not, for me, my life's work is going to be bringing ancient, you know, medicine and Buddhist wisdom together. 
You, you, when you say the shamanic world you're, and ancient medicine, you're t- again, we're talking about ayahuasca here. Well, I'm talking about Amazonian shamanism beyond just ayahuasca. I'm talking about Am- that's my tradition that I come from where I learned Amazonian shamanism blends a lot more than just ayahuasca. It's a whole view about plants, nature, healing, energy. It's like a whole pantheon of of plants, spirits. Under it, It's a world. It's like... It's like Harry Potter when they go looking for, you know, the side, the, the muggles and then the magic world. It's like that. Do you, you believe know? it's literally true? <laughs> um, I believe what has happened to me, what I've seen and understand and what's still unfolding. And so all I can do is what I believe. I mean, it's all true and all not true, Dan. I mean, if we're going to, you know, it's all, it's just another story we're making up that's as real as these headphones, <laughs> right? I mean, there's another reality that's as real as that. I mean, can I negate it? No, the headphones are here. I can't negate them. So you see some crazy stuff under the influence of the, of the ayahuasca and you're not negating it is what you're saying, I think. You see crazy stuff walking in your in your dream world, in your life, in your, well, while you're freaking out about your you know, anything. People are always seeing crazy stuff. On retreats, I've dealt with more people that seem way worse than ayahuasca ceremony. I mean, at IMS, we literally, I start my new book with the red phone, where I grab the red phone and go, help! I mean, you know. Uh, okay, <laughs> let me just unpack that for a So the new book that you're about to write, the yeah, opening scene is you grabbing the red phone, which is the, the Emergency. phone. Yeah, and that's at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, where they have a red phone for meditators who are freaking out while on retreat. Yes. And you I, actually picked it up? That was the opening chapter. I pick up the phone and I go, help. And luckily, Greg Sharp, who's a friend of mine and was in teacher training, was had it, you know, at the phone and ran and got, you know, food and crackers and talked <laughs> me down off the Oh, my gosh. I mean, I just everything. It was like I I just I was doing meta jhana. Okay, oh, I never wait. told you the story. No, explain it. This oh. is the this is a story that's going to be in the next book. It's kind of in this one, but I will elaborate because it's the opening chapter because it's where I needed more help than what I could get there. I, I had surpassed the the help. The help. Was, it was beyond. I appreciated what was there. I needed it in that moment, but I saw a bigger crack that I needed. Like, wow, there something's broken on such a fundamental level that I can't on my own within this particular system of sitting silently on my cushion heel. I needed something beyond that. And so that was what that that um, experience. Tell was. me the story. I want to hear it. Yeah. Meta Jenna. So, yeah, so I, of course, being one of my specialties is wanting, you know, the heart practices. And I think that's what a fierce heart is about. It's like I'm starting to understand the heart. And anyway, that's a whole separate conversation. I got to be for that term, the heart, but we can let's let's table that. Yeah, but we're just pointing to an energy of something that's bigger than ourselves. You know, that's how I look at it. Uh, uh, Something that's so much bigger than myself, so much more powerful. Um, So I had done many three-month courses, as you know, at Inside Meditation Society. Three-month retreats. Three-month retreats. Where you just step out of the world, relinquish your cell phone and your own. Fly from Oakland, leave my colorful community, and enter into... Lily White, Inside (laughs) Meditation Society. Right, everyone's walking slowly, (laughs) and it was, you know, painful at times, but also 
Um, I cared more about the Dharma, and that was what was the most important thing, what I was learning. And, of course, Joseph Goldstein was my teacher at all those courses. Who is my meditation teacher and who has never come on this podcast, but whatever. Not that I'm bitter. Okay, well, maybe he'll hear this. We'll say, Joseph. (laughs) He knows. knows. Yeah. He's going to do it. He's going to do it one of these days. Um, And so I was, you know, doing Meta Jhana. I wanted to do Jhana Meta Jhana. So Jhana practice is um, concentration practice. Jhana is a term that means just super concentration, you can say. Absorption is another word. And so J H A N A Jhana. There are several Jana. levels. They're kind of these. Uh, a friend of mine describes them as these like interconnected rooms in the mind that you can access if you get super concentrated. Yes, that's a really great way. And there's eight typically eight, and most people only access the first four. To go beyond the first four is kind of like Actually, city, most people, city powers. Most people don't even yeah, barely get to yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> most people barely get even to neighborhood concentration, yeah. where it's just kind of in the ballpark of yes. concentration. Um, well, I had like an aptitude for, for those states I I've had for my whole life. And so I noticed that it would be enhanced when we would do meta practice because meta practice is concentrated as a, you know, intensive. And again, meta M E T T A is loving kindness meditation. Yeah. So So. it's like superfied, you know, you're saying the phrases over and over again, may I be happy and peaceful may I be safe and protected may I be healthy and strong. May I live with ease and well-being. Some variation of that you're saying over and over again. And So you're um, switching back and forth in your practice between one session you'll be doing jhana practice where you're getting super focused on the breath. And then and then another session you were doing metta or were you doing them both at the same time in some way? I was doing the metta practice as an absorption practice. Oh, I see. So okay. because that actually is the most powerful doorway. Interesting. Because if you think about it, the... Um, the cause of concentration is happiness. It's not this bearing down, you know, image that we have, like, focus. It's actually that when the mind is happy, filled with love and happiness, things happen. The mind naturally collects itself. It's a natural radiance, natural collectability. You know, when we're agitated, the mind is just like a windstorm. You know, it's never going to settle. This is such an important lesson for meditators because we do think that the way I personally have suffered from this immeasurably, which is <laughs> as a type A person that, you know, the, if you grit your teeth and bear down, that's the root. But uh, um, try it. It's See called it suffering. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and yes. most people pick up the red phone because they're doing that. Yeah. The red phone is a breaking point in the mind where people just can't strive anymore and they're just going crazy. So, um, so I was doing this jhanic practice and it was great i was working with myself i had the dalai lama as my object this is what i was doing all day what do you mean you had the dalai lama as your object he was what i was practicing on he was in the meta practice you do categories and you to learn how to develop unconditional love you use these categories you start with yourself you do dear friend you have a neutral person you have the enemy um, you got to come on one of my meta retreats, Dan. Well, you were the first person to teach me this type of practice uh, in 2010 or nine or wherever at Spirit Rock uh, Meditation right. Center. And yes, for those for the uninitiated, basically meta practice involves sitting. You envision a series of beings. Usually, start with yourself. And you move to a benefactor, a dear friend, 
Uh, I often slip my wife in there. Um, and then uh, a neutral person, somebody you see but often ignore. And then a difficult person, sometimes referred to as the enemy. And then the finally all beings. And in each one of these cases, you're sort of visualizing them and then sending, repeating these phrases of may you be happy, may you be well, may you be, may you live with ease. And when you taught me this, I thought this is the singular most <laughs> annoying thing I have ever encountered. But it is, uh, there's science that suggests it works and a lot of personal experience as well. Yeah, our meta retreats are really powerful. You know, I, I, last year I did two at Spirit Rock. This year I'll do one. We do a meta and Qigong retreat in the first week of December. And it is brutal for people to love themselves, to open. It, I've never seen, I mean, it, it becomes shamanic. People are getting sick, they're having asthma attacks. The symptoms of just trying to open to love, loving themselves and others, this bringing in this meta energy, it is incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything. I mean, we all prepare for these retreats now. The managers are like, okay, we might have taken people to a hospital. There might be a lot of throwing up, a lot Whoa. of fevers. I mean, we're t this stuff is real. It's not just, you know... Uh, hippie talk, as you know, it's science. It it can yeah. prove it. No, I and mean, so uh, it I, has an effect on the body. I wrote about the the that, that <laughs> I did. broke down crying, uh, which is not something that has happened before or since in my adult life. Come another retreat, Dan. I think we're ready for another one. Well, as it turns out, I actually have a proposal for you about leading one of these <laughs> retreats uh, in in a specific way that we'll we'll talk about offline. But uh, right. so yes, for like really mean Republican types. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> not <laughs> no, all. I'm not there are pretty right, mean uh, Democrats. Yeah, let's there just are. Say. There are. There are. Um, so anyway, I had went there specifically because I wanted to work with concentration. I was in teacher training. This was part of my development was to explore the jhanas, to explore absorption, to explore deeper states of metta. In the Burmese tradition, Joseph found it very effective to use metta. That was one of his doorways and also, you know, um, breath, body too, but also meta. And so I asked him to guide me for the three-month course in meta. And also, I think it was Guy Armstrong too was also helping me. He also had a, a really big interest in it. So I think for the first six weeks, I did concentration working with breath. And then I moved for the second part into working strictly with the meta. And it was during that time that everything just, my whole system went haywire. Because what happened was... What do you mean? But when you say your system went haywire, what, how? Okay. So energetically, this insane ringing started in my ears. Joseph thought I had an ear infection. They were like going to take me to see his doctor. They, I mean, it was... I, I was like I was living underwater. Imagine one day it just clicked on and I'm talking to you, but it's like we're talking underwater. Oof. It was scary. I would look at the floor and it would look like the ocean. And they were like, oh, yeah, this happens in disillusionment. So they're they're using, you know, Mahasi Sayadaw's map of insight, stages of insight. Yeah, this happens at this. They're looking it up. Right? Okay, let me just explain <laughs> this for a second. Okay, so there is... <laughs> Joseph Goldstein, again, my teacher, your teacher, amazing teacher, uh, comes out of a tradition that is Burmese, mm -hmm. and they uh, he, Joseph's teacher is a guy named Mahasi Sayada, and uh, they look back to the ancient um, Buddhist map 
for what happens in the various stages of enlightenment. Yes. One of the stages is known as disillusionment. Disillusionment, yes. And so, like, that's things kind of go crazy. Yes. And you can consult these ancient texts yeah. and find, oh, yeah, 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 th- things get really weird in, in the following ways. It's really detailed. So anyway, they were able to see that something like you look at the ground and you see water, that showed up in the ancient texts? Well, some version of that, where the elements fall out of focus because everything becomes, you're looking at everything more on the energetic level. You're experiencing less solidity, you see? And so I've decided to see, well, all right, well, water looks like this and that, the ground looks like, you know, everything started. But I didn't have capacity to understand that. And I'd read about it too. It's in this map they use called the Stages of Insight. And where that that's the classic go to cheat sheet or whatever you you know cookbook, for <laughs> cookbook. Yeah. yeah you have to be careful with that one you, you know, can run into trouble you can run into trouble or you could just endless striving and mm-hmm. you know get on the wrong path but um so and then I couldn't eat I was nauseated all the time and then I basically emotionally it was the most crippling sense of abandonment it was unbelievable it was as if i had no refuge i couldn't find faith i couldn't find any of these qualities that were usually my go-to and and what started happening was i went so high in these jhanic realms that it's a purification that's been my experience with love working with meta working with these energies it's, it's like you step on the gas pedal and i wasn't ready because i had all this unresolved trauma and it was like I went so high and then I crashed down into the depths of hell emotionally. And so were you able to pr- continue practicing? No, that's what became harder. The more I practiced, the more the symptoms intensified. So pretty soon I couldn't even eat anymore. So the night I picked up the red phone, I hadn't eaten in days. I was about to throw up the floor. I barely made it out of my room because I was basically like walking on water in this weird dis. Uh, you know, I felt abandoned, totally disassociated from my body. Another very big danger. Now, I, this had never happened to me. I had done many retreats. I felt like a warrior. I could sit through. All I had to do is be present. I would tell myself that, but this I couldn't be present with. It was the first time that I had reached a place where I couldn't be with it. So I pick up the red phone. There's Greg, you know, somewhere on the facilities. And he, you know, runs and gets ginger ale and crackers and he's trying to bring me down. But the more I practiced, the more I was in the silence, the more the intensity of the ringing, everything was magnifying. So you had to stop practicing. I had to stop practicing. I had to stop. I ate some crackers. That was momentary, you know. You know, what did they do? They start cheering you up, encouraging you to read books, you know. It's a very interesting thing. You might have another show about like these kind of cases where people have to often uh, leave the center or start eating meat, running hours a day. You know, there's all kinds of to bring the solidity. There's something that kind of cracks open. And um, some people really have the ability to be with it if they don't have a lot of trauma. You see, trauma is this exploding energy that we throw into a situation. It's like PTSD. Right. So something feels out of control and disconnected. The mind falls into this cavern. And that's what happened to me. I would imagine some I have a thousand questions, uh, but uh, Mm -hmm. I would imagine some people listening to this would say, why would I ever do an intensive retreat if this is on offer? 
Right. Well, this is extreme. We're talking about a three month. We're talking about doing I was diving into the the you know, the underworld of my mind. I was looking to pull out these things. I was I was digging Why? for it. Um because it's like in some way I didn't feel free. After a while with the meditation, what can happen with some people is they can go along for a long time and they hit a plateau, Dan. They hit a plateau where they don't they don't feel like they're growing as much anymore. It's like when they first meet it, there's a love affair, right? And they everybody's happy. It's like you first get married, right? I love the Buddha. The Buddha loves me or whatever. Mindfulness loves me. I love this. And then what happens is the the door to the, the underworld starts knocking. And it's like, okay, it's layers that we're peeling off here. I mean, meditation is the path of purification. Purification. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, the word purification, and that's from the Vasudhi Maga. Which is the ancient text that lays out another the... Another uh, one. Another great yes, one. Yes, that lays yeah. out the path to enlightenment. Yeah, which is called the path of purification, ultimately, in the Vasudhi Maga and how it they... It sounds kind of highfalutin. Purification? Yeah, the term. Really? Path it's so funny what people... how people, Some people get scared. They feel like it's very religious. It's so yeah. funny, our association, highfalutin. Yeah. No! Purification is like you take something dirty, you clean it. You're, you're, you're. It's the, it's the metaphor of the, the jewel in the lotus, right? It's like what we're doing is we are purifying the mind of all of its delusions and obscurations, right? I mean, I love about the Dharma. I, I love it somehow that the, the Buddha deposited that we're all enlightened. We just forgot. <laughs> Isn't that optimistic? It is optimistic. Yeah. However, we forgot, and that forgetting is a thousand veils, you know, a thousand things that obscure that. We don't see our true nature. Otherwise, we'd be all acting differently, wouldn't we, if we all saw our true nature, you know, which is, you know, they say, I know you're probably skeptical, but is this innate goodness? No, I'm not skeptical of that. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, this innate goodness, but we don't see it. Look how everyone's acting. Look at the blogs. It's obscured, Dan. We can all we can all agree to that, yes. right? We're not yes. seeing who we really are, mm-hmm. or who others are, or who other exactly. Um, so, so that's what purification means. It's not a highfalutin word. It's not a religious word. It's not a scary word necessarily. Although everybody has an association with the word, but it means to clean, to clear away that which is obscuring. I think of it in the following context, which is that for me, I, I say this all the time, that the animating insight of both my personal practice and my public evangelicalism is is that the mind is trainable. Yes. And so purification is just another way from my viewpoint, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, of thinking about the training of the mind toward away from the things we don't like, like that we know aren't good for us, like greed and hatred, confusion, and toward things that we do want, you know, happiness, satisfaction, calm, patience, generosity, compassion, um, that kind of thing. I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're rather you call it training or clearing or moving or awakening. All all these words are trying to define that clearing process where we, we stop being sadomasochist to ourselves and become what that part of our mind that wants to move towards more peace. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. So how did it go for you after they brought you the after Greg Sharf brought you the, um, <laughs> the ginger ale ginger and, the crackers, and yeah. the crackers? Not much better. I mean, obviously having contact was helpful, and Greg was already my friend. You know, we were in the you know doing trainings together for years, and you know I trusted him. Um, and you know we spent hours talking, and I was trying to figure out: Do I stay on the retreat or do I go? I had a meeting with Joseph. Um, Again, I think Joseph had a tremendous confidence in me, you know, like you can open to this spring. Come on, you're, you know, fight it out in there. You know, you're in. And I and I I didn't know how to really articulate how bad I felt and how freaked out I felt because I was already supposed to have answers. I was already in this teacher training. I was already supposed to know something. So I think a part of me was like a little bit uh, embarrassed. Like, why am I falling apart? I can't be falling apart. Wait, I am falling apart. So I didn't know if I could tell him they were like the senior people. And I was like kind of hiding the degree of my freak out from him and Guy. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't feel comfortable I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was going on. So I left two weeks early and went home. Yeah. Because I remember calling my sister and saying, it's all just falling apart. She goes, get out of there. Come back to Oakland. You know, thinking the environment is killing me. Maybe it was the, I don't know, everyone's slow walking. I don't know. She goes, get back to Oakland. But it did not help when I went home. It, it did not. No. So how did you get out of this? Well, that led me to seeking out what we talked about in my first interview and where a whole nother journey started in order to get 
back into my body and understand what was happening. All I know was something is wrong. And that's how I start the first chapter of the book goes going, something's wrong. Help that something was wrong. Let me go back for a second, because this will bring us back to the beginning of this discussion and to your current book, A Fierce Heart. Tell me about the content of the trauma. What, what, What had traumatized you? I think what traumatized me was um, one was kind of growing up early on in a lot of violence. Okay, so I think when you grow up around, you know, there was always helicopters and I was, we didn't go outside and there was like gunshots. This is in L.A.? This is in, yeah, East Long Beach, right on the Compton border, a little town called Bellflower. And we just had all these gang members and my parents fought all the time. And my father was using drugs. What kind of drugs was he using? I think then he was really, it was like cocaine and alcohol. I think pretty much those were always his two of choice. And he's cleared that from, you know, he doesn't use drugs anymore and alcohol. He's, you know, changed. But at that time, you know, he was, uh, he had his own trauma. My parents were both. I I forgave them a lot because I understood it. How could they not have turned out? Yeah, they're actually doing better, I think, than some people might do. Um, so then when, so then we moved around and then, and then as I got older, I would have all these and there was like sexual abuse from in the family. Well, no, from neighbor, a neighbor when we moved into a new location, right? Cause you kind of attract, you know, everyone's at work and kids get left behind, you know? And so, yeah, there was a lot of pedophiles around where I grew up. It was a kind of like a weird energy. I, I they were just everywhere. I, I, I like, you know, uh, yeah, it's kind of sad. It's part of the whole Me Too movement as we see so many people affected. Well, this is this is not workplace sexual harassment. Yeah, this is, this is a child other, sexual mm, abuse. That's yeah, that's that's a big leap. Yeah. And then, so both you and yeah. your sister had to endure this? My sister, not my sister kind of got more unscathed. She was more fearful. I had this very outgoing personality. So I was always around, right? I was out talking to adults, looking around. I was like, I think I was more uh, available to that for some reason. And you my didn't get gun shy nature. after the first time it happened? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I actually told there was a, a neighbor and I told a, a lot of people. And yeah, I, it was it's like a whole thing when he was showing movies to all these little kids. And I told everybody I did. But the parents didn't have a hard time believing us at first that what was going on. Was it repeated? Um, A few times. And again, I didn't even have the worst of it. More came later as we got older and different things happened. Just what happens to, you know, is violent traumatic things and I was very sensitive when I was younger I didn't realize how sensitive I was at all of this because I was very curious and very awake when I was young I could like think about things look at my okay this is not right here you know I I was able to and you know we see this now like this eight-year-old girl giving a speech you know like I was had I been in the right environment I would have been speaking out like I was seeing things but um you know, things happen and what happens is trauma accumulates. And then when I was 15, I left my mother's house. Like every story, I could always see the cause. You know, that's why it would always, some way it was easy to forgive them in a way. Doesn't mean I'm going to be around them, but it was forgivable 
this behavior is passed down. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is, and how do you break these patterns? You're breaking the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I feel happy about that. I do feel like I'm breaking a pattern. And what was emerging when I was on that retreat was a pattern, a piece of the pattern I was trying to break, but I didn't know how to do it on my own in that moment. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was wrong. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know how to get to it. Because some of these things are at the DNA level. You know, we don't just get our hair color and eye color. We get passed down whole belief systems programs. Well, you know, it's been shown um, that even the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors are more prone to anxiety. Yep. So this is not like woo-woo stuff you're in here. No, and this is the kind of work that I needed to do that whatever it was like a breaking point and I had reached, you know, and on both sides of my family is mental illness. Like it, it's it's not an it's not a lineage of enlightenment. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God. Ah. Which, which makes and this is gonna be maybe embarrassing for you to hear me say, but it makes what you've done so incredible and so incredibly courageous. It's one thing for somebody like me who's I was born on third base. There's really no uh, history of. I mean, we've I have, I have history of depression on both sides of the family and things like that. But like two super loving parents who loved each other and loved their kids and were doctors and you know really trauma free life. One thing for me to dive into meditation. It's an entirely different thing for somebody like you to do it. Well, thank you. Well, I'm. I. I mean, I love the Dharma. I love meditation. This has been my whole life. Yeah, you know, I've dedicated. You know, I've been hanging around Spirit Rock since I was 23. You know, it's 20 years. What would your life be like if you hadn't stumbled into this stuff? I think I would have stumbled into it. I was no matter de- what. I, no matter what, because I was a thinker and I cared and I wanted to know what was creating all this suffering. I genuinely had that answer my entire for year, even a teenager. You know, so I was a seeker. I would have found it. What about uh, your siblings? You mentioned some of them are in prison. How have they generally fared? Um, I would say doing better now. My sister, who I'm very close to, has always done well. I mean, she's had to overcome a lot of her own trauma, but she is also on a spiritual path. She's someone I connect to regularly. We're very similar. She, you know, she's amazing. She's two years older. And then I have three younger brothers. And I think for them, they're young African-American men. You know, they're growing up. They didn't, you know, my father. Your your mother. They're on my father's side okay so yeah because your mother's white if i recall yes Yes. my mother's white and so is their mother interesting yeah and my father um uh, yeah for dated white women a lot but society tags them as young african-american yeah because they don't look white yeah you know they don't look they wouldn't yeah they look brown Mm -hmm. you know or non-white you know even though they're biracial yeah they are biracial and so um, it might be because of that. We all have a, a deep connection to that. Um, but they're they're struggling and I'm 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 trying to help work with them. My father was very difficult and their mother, you know, so sad story, their mother died. So they have a lot of trauma. So my goal is to help provide some stability for them. You know, they're kind of on their own. You know, my father is not yeah, his job is done. He's kind of lives in an alternate reality. Do you think meditation would be useful for people in this position? Yes. Actually, my my brother Lamaz, who's 30, he wants to come to a meditation retreat. He came to visit me in California for the first time, and he came to our center in Oakland and was really into it. I was shocked. 
Interesting. Yeah. All right, I want to ask about some of the other chapters in this Yeah, book. so I write all this about all these stories in a fierce heart. You, I mean, and you write very well, and it's the, the, the content of, the, uh, of what you write about is, I mean, you, you hear, listeners will hear you delivering it kind of lightly, but it's shocking. Um, there's a chapter called Meeting the Great Chief. What is that one? Favorite chapter, but then I say that about all of them, Dan. <laughs> I'm not because surprised because they are meeting the great chief was when I went on a five month retreat. Now this was years after all this trauma. I felt way better. Okay, this is after the after red phone. the red phone. Yeah. This is three. This is about three years after the red phone. Okay, and so I felt much more empowered place. So I was so tired. I was burnt out. I had all these projects going in Oakland. I felt like, oh, I just need a retreat. But where do I want to go? So it's East Bay. East Bay Meditation Center okay, yeah. is our center in downtown Oakland, um, which I dedicate the book to all the, the community there. Yeah. And all their stories have gone into this book, too. The, all the beautiful stories, redemption and freedom, love, heartbreak. Because this is a, a, a diverse sangha and every sangha, by the way, is just Buddhist jargon for community. This is a diverse crew in every sense, it's socioeconomic, yes. uh, ethnic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we have people from every walk of life, every lived experience. Yeah. So, um, so you were burned out. So I was really tired. I'd been putting, you know, blood, sweat and tears out for a long time. And so I wanted to go on a retreat, but I didn't know where to go. I read about Crestone, Colorado. At that time, I started practicing with a Tibetan teacher and I heard about this really beautiful Tibetan center that you could do a retreat. It just fit eight people. It was at the foothills of these gorgeous mountains. Eight people? Only eight people. Wow. Which is good, right? Small is good. It was a tiny little center. Um, and it was said it was in the Kagyu lineage, um, Tibetan Buddhist lineage, and I felt really connected to it. And I reached out and I said, "Okay, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to do Tibetan style purification practices," which was interesting. I was really drawn to doing. So I was going to do a hundred thousand prostrations, a hundred thousand mantras, um, and so prostrations meaning like getting up, bowing. Yes, getting up again, like, it's a yeah. sun salutation, basically a hundred thousand times. Why you? Hundred thousand. Why you image you? You take refuge at the same time. So take taking, refuge. You take refuge in your Buddha nature. You take refuge in the the teachings that show you that, and then the sangha, the all the people supporting it, and those who have so walked it. Symbolic, symbolic thing in your mind of yes. taking. This is your your. Coming home to the teachings. Yeah, this is where yeah. you go, where everything else is unstable, unpredictable, uncertain, not going to last. And according to the Buddhist teachings, these three jewels, these three refuges are the things that are stable. This is our, where true refuge can be found. Um, and so you do that while you bow 100,000 times. So I set myself up and I was going to do also very intense compassion practice, you know, um, uh, where I was doing, yeah, very, you know, certain uh, images and practices and evoking the quality of compassion. So I stayed there for two months doing it in this little center. And um, I wanted to, there was a really, to tell you the truth, there was this Bhutanese Dzogchen master who was running the retreat. And he was wanted to practice English with me all the time. <laughs> he would see me coming and be so happy. And then I felt like I was getting cornered and more and more and I was talking and I didn't want to talk. And so this nun told me about this cabin. 
She said, well, if you want to be a real practitioner, there's a little cabin way up in the mountains. You can, you know, they'll bring you food and, and, you know, it's just an outhouse, though. And, you know, you know, burn wood for heat. And I heard that and I said, take me up there, please. I want to go up there. And I went up to this magical little cabin. I mean, it was no bigger than this room and this where we're in, I don't know, 100 square feet. It was this be about it was. Yeah. And half of that was the altar and they had a little refrigerator and they had one solar panel on the top side, a little light at night. And I went, I'll take it. And I said about I moved in there for three months. Wow. Oh, Dan. I remember I had so many lofty ideas. I was thinking, you know, as I was moving over there, it's be so great. No one will bother me. It'll be so fun. Me and nature. And um I'll have all these amazing moments. And so as I was getting up there and the caretaker was this crazy man, one of those mountain people with long hair named Jampa, he starts driving his truck down the hill after dropping me off. He said, okay, you're going to be all right. You got your water. I'll see you in about 10, 12 days. And he drove down and I descended into the worst panic I'd ever felt. I went, no. (laughs) And the next three months it, that's what I had I had hours of fear all night long I shook in fear I couldn't sleep I just shook all night long in fear and terror of what? I don't know I, I, the minute it would get dark outside it was I feel like it was some primal again I'm going to use the word purification because I can't understand it in any other context I would sit as the night would come uh, I would hear all the animals I mean I was way up there and there's a lot of black bears you know, they were starting to wake up and, there, you know, and the things out there. I just I, I felt like any moment I was going to be annihilated. You know, the Buddha used to do that. Sit in the forest and wait for things to to yeah. scare him and, and, and ride practice. it out mindfully. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to do that. I was trying to. And I that's all I had. I had no phone, no computer. I had a stack of Buddhist books like The Nature of Reality, Part 1 through 10. You know, that was all I <laughs> <laughs> and right. I was. I'm teach. waiting for the Netflix version, <laughs> right? And I was thinking, I'll teach myself. It's time to grow up. And I was doing these practices, and I would sob and sob. Hours of grief came. I didn't even know what kind of grief that was. I call it African grief, not because I'm half African American, but because it would just come out of nowhere, and it, I would just start wailing. And they would turn into mantras, and that went on all day, wailing, crying, and all night, fear. So after a month, I thought I was literally going to go insane. And then it dawned on me, the only way I'm going to get through this is if I have compassion. So I started praying for compassion to come every second. I was praying to Tara, Kuan Yin, Chen Rizig, Avalokiteshvara. These are all names for the same energy. You know, uh, Jesus, Mary, any possible Gaia, nature, anywhere, the sky. And I just started praying. And because I realized without compassion, I couldn't get through that level of purification. Like whatever was coming, it had clicked on to some other, but I was no longer on the map that everyone else is on. We had <laughs> went on another. And I, what's funny is I knew it was good to do. I had faith in it. I just didn't know how it was going to be with those kind of emotions. And they weren't lighting up. It was going on day after day, hours after hours. And at night, the only way I could sleep, I had this tiny little bed, was I would put these giant cushions behind me. I had these like, you know, Zafus behind me. All I had was an altar. And then I would imagine that I was, there were these giant bosoms. And then I would imagine being in the arms of compassion. And that is the only way I could sleep. 
and that would just be a couple hours I'd wake up and then I'd have to keep that vision compassion to stop shaking who's the great chief in this chapter compassion yeah because what happened was when it came in I felt like that energy was so profound that I started to understand the Dalai Lama's view on compassion I started to understand all these great texts I'd read and these masters who say they would pray for compassion and how compassion was actually so powerful with insight because it could go to those places that we would never go. You know, it could, it itself had its own power. And I started to feel that. So I started bowing when I was doing my prostrations and I started bowing to the great chief compassion. I just nicknamed it that. <laughs> I was like great chief or great priestess, but it, it came out as like the word chief though. So I said, oh, without the chief. So when I left that cabin, I felt like I had a whole new understanding. Given the, the really the profundity of the trauma that you've experienced in your life, um, what about traditional medicine, traditional psychotherapy, medication, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I did all that. I never did. I never took medication, but I done. I mean, you name it, I did it. I mean, I did holotropic breath work, trauma release, rebirth. I did traditional psychotherapy for periods, and it was very helpful. It would help me understand something, but it couldn't help me liberate it. Uh, it's funny because I've heard the expression that, and I can't remember who said it, that psychotherapy brings understanding without relief. Yeah. And sometimes the, the understanding is a momentary relief. Yes. But it's not a true cessation. It's not a, and, and I, I would find that right away because I was willing to get right to the point. Like I knew, like, so our, our time was efficient. You know, my therapeutic time within five months, we were right on the, you know, right there. And then it was up to me to liberate it. What would you say your mission in life is? I mean, I don't want to sound like a, a cliche, but I, I really, really, really do think it's for, for bettering humanity. It really is for helping people. I really, really, every day I wake up with that thought of bodhicitta. Define that. May this moment, may this life, may this day be for the benefit of others. I really feel like that. And my writing, as we talked about, you're, you know, it's torturous, but it's not for me. It's like, suck it up, spring. It's like, this could help someone else. This book is reaching the demographic that I wanted. It's reaching urban communities. Um, how do, uh, I mean, I'm sure people are thinking this, but I'll just ask it in the, in the, in, in the most selfish way. Like, I mean, it sounds great to have that be your North Star, but I, it's not my North Star. I mean, I would like it to be. Yeah. But, like, how does one get there? Because when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, um, I want something to eat. Um, and, like, I need to, you know, do – get all, Yeah, get all this stuff done. And, um, you know, when I write a book, yeah, I do want it to benefit people, but I'd also like it to be super successful and benefit me, too, and – my company and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know that if I look honestly at my motivations, it's all bodhicitta. Well, I think that, again, Dan, I think it's obscured. It's there. I, 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 I think it's innate in you. It's totally innate in you. I know that the a skeptic and I know that it's like, no, I, you see these other forces like, oh, well, I'm great if I sold this many books or my company or I want, you know, pancakes and, you know, yeah, all of that. I have that too. It's not that that's not there. 
it's not it's not that I don't wake up with some of that, but but what really excites me is 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 helping other people um see themselves in a different way and 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 know that they can they can find happiness they can get better do you think in in terms of um living a life that is truly motivated by let's just use the term bodhicitta or mm-hmm. just trying to help people mm-hmm. um that's really just about seeing that it feels better to live that way than to be stuck in the story of wanting pancakes. Yes. I mean, that's it's a selfish motivation, actually. Yeah. The Dalai Lama said it's so great to be selfish because he said altruism makes me happy. So that's why I practice it. You know, it's completely, it, it's like, at the end of the day, the things that make me happy are those moments of joy that I have with people, right? It's walking down the street in a class or I'm hugging someone or someone writes to me about, oh my God, I read your book. This is helping me. I'm going to go on retreat or I'm feeling better about myself. Those moments are what it's about for me. If it was just full of pancake longings, wow, that's suffering. Well, that's most of our lives. Yeah. I look at most humanity is, you know, medicated, suffering, confused, upset or violent. You know, or some variation, not everybody, but it's, I mean, it's indicative of that. So it's cool to be with you. I uh, reminded why I like you so much. Oh, I love you, Dan. You're, <laughs> and I feel very, I feel, I know it's, you're, you're, you have your own life. But I just feel so inspired from where I met you to where you are now. And I think you're going to, by the end of your life, you're going to see this bodhicitta with 100% clarity because I think every year it's going to get just the layers of it are going to just get more clear, 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 clear. I'm working on that purification. I know you are. I take are. it seriously. I yeah. know. And that's what touches me about you. I feel that in your work and your projects and your company. I, I, I'm so, I feel like a proud mom, but... It's, I'm not your mom, so <laughs> you were a big part of it. You were right there at the key moment, the key moment in my first retreat. Aww. Joseph always jokes about how they, they want to put. He's like, he writes me an email pretty much every year when he goes back to Spirit Rock. He's like, yeah, this is the place of your great awakening. They put up a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll put you in the gratitude hut. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It was well done. Mm-hmm. It was you were great as always. And I just want to say that I often admit I'm such a bad podcast host that I can't read people's books, but I have read enough of this to heartily recommend it. It's um, very brave and very well written. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.